Yesterday we um, looked at what I'm trying gropingly to understand as a secular Buddhism. And we concluded with four uh, foundations on which we might build such um, an edifice. The principle of conditioned arising, the process of the Four Noble Truths, the practice of mindful awareness, and the power of self-reliance. The diligent student will realize that these are the four P's. (laughs) Principle, process, practice, and power. Today I'm going to look at uh, the first one, principle, conditioned arising. We already went over this a bit yesterday, but I'm going to flesh it out further today. But before we do that, I'd like to uh, just uh, flag um, another um, sort of guiding, uh, guiding principle, I suppose, uh, to the way that I think about the Dharma, about Buddhism. And that is, I feel that the uh, the Buddhist teaching, the Buddhist teaching, um, is pragmatic rather than dogmatic. That it is prescriptive rather than descriptive. Two more P's, by happy coincidence. Pragmatic, not dogmatic. Prescriptive, not descriptive. These are largely come to the same thing. The, um, I suppose one of the locus, uh, one of the classical um, starting points for this would be the parable of the arrow, which you have in your handout on page nine. Now this comes from the Malunkya Putta Sutta. I'm not going to read the whole thing because um, you're probably familiar with it. But, um, well, actually, why don't I read it? This is um, Malunkya Putta, who's a disciple of the Buddha, who says, the Buddha does not declare these to me. Oh, hang on. Um, Right, Uh, I'm sorry, I haven't got it all under here. You have to look at the previous analogy of the elephant. But basically, the Buddha um, has 14 points about which he does not make any declaration. These are sometimes called the unanswered questions. But they actually mean the undeclared points. Whether the world is eternal, not eternal, has a beginning, sorry, is finite or infinite. Whether mind and body are the same, whether mind and body are two different things. Whether the Tathagata exists after death, does not exist after death, both exists and does not exist, neither exists nor does not exist. 14, I think, 2, 4, 6, or 12, or whatever. The, in any case, that's the classic list. And by the Tathagata, although traditional Buddhism conveniently says this only refers to the Buddha, in fact, I think it's fairly indisputable, and the Pali, canonical, uh, the Pali commentarial tradition supports this, it actually means one. One does not exist, one does exist, 
both or neither after death. In other words, the question of rebirth itself. So, if you think about it, these are a typical statement of what might be called the big questions. And they're still around today. We still argue back and forth about them all the time. Are the mind and the body the same? Are they different? This is nowadays called the mind-body problem in, uh, in science. Do we exist or not after death? I don't have to flag how much that is still a big issue. The questions about the beginning, end of the universe, finite or infinite, that is perhaps felt to be more settled now, but again, we're certainly dealing with a very big picture that even today is likely to be, current understanding is likely to be overthrown. And so the Buddha was rather prescient in pointing out that these are the sorts of questions that can exercise the human mind, probably till the proverbial cows come home and will not get resolved. And the, basic, the Buddha's basic response to this is, don't go there. This is irrelevant. That, that is his main point. He's not being agnostic, as, as I argued once, saying, actually, I don't know. He's just saying, don't go there. And this is a pragmatic approach. The reason you don't go there it's not because the Buddha may not know the answer, perhaps he does. But the reason he tells you not to go there is because such kinds of um, inquiry, such speculation is not conducive to the way of life he teaches. And then he gives the parable of the man who is shot by an arrow and refuses to let anyone take it out until he knows the name and clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether the man who wounded me was tall or short or of medium height, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden-skinned, whether he lives in such and such a village or town or city, until I know whether the bow that wounded me was a longbow or a crossbow, until I know whether the bow string that wounded me was made of fibre or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, until I know whether the shaft of the arrow was wild or cultivated, until I know with what kind of feathers the shaft was wounded, the shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture or a crow or a hawk or a peacock or stork. I mean, this is the Buddha teasing out in a very witty way what we would now call the equivalent of how many angels can you get on the tip of a pin? In other words, such questions will lead to endless speculation and meanwhile the person will die. This is the upshot of it. And then the Buddha turns that around and said, if you, are, if, if you, if you refuse to practice the Dharma until you know the answers to the big questions, you'll be dead before you can even put your first foot on the path. Now this for me is a very important starting point for understanding the Buddha's teaching. He's, it's not concerned with these questions. And in that sense you might even argue it's not really a religion. Because as we saw yesterday, religion is concerned with giving us answers to the big questions. And as Buddhism evolved into a religion, or let's say the Dharma evolved into a religion 
What do you find? Answers to all these questions. It's rather paradoxical, perhaps, that all Buddhist schools, pretty much without exception, believe that the universe has no beginning. They probably believe it's infinite. They certainly believe that mind and body are separate. If not, you wouldn't have a basis for declaring, uh, for understanding what is reborn. And, of course, they believe quite clearly that uh, the person continues after death. And in the case of the Tathagata, if you want that, they even say the Tathagata does not continue after death. Or the Arhant, let's say, does not continue after death. The Tathagata might go on till the end of Sangsara. But in other words, Buddhism as a religion has got answers to all these big questions. The Dharma, as the Buddha taught it, told you to steer clear of these answers, uh, uh, these questions, and not get bogged down in them. And yet how much of the kinds of discussions and debates and polemics that you read in Buddhist books and papers are basically still arguing about these points. So in other words, the Buddha's teaching is pragmatic, not dogmatic. It's about doing something, not believing something. It's about prescription, not description. In other words, a prescription is saying, this is what you ought to do. A description is saying, this is how reality is. I don't think the Buddha was even interested in describing reality. I think he was interested, as he himself says, in suffering and the end of suffering. In other words, doing something, engaging in a practice that might actually make a qualitative difference in your life here and now. And if there's a life after death, then in that life after death too. It's the quality of life the quality of human being that he's concerned with. And that requires action, doing something. Now one might think that all of this talk about conditioned arising is descriptive. It's an account, a description of how the world works. In some ways I think it is. But I don't think that's the main point. Go to page 28 of your, um, of your text, and there you get a verse from the Sutta Nipata. Whenever you see the reference under a verse with a capital S and a small n, dot, that's abbreviation for Sutta Nipata. And um, I need to say something about that. The Sutta Nipata is considered both by... Buddhist scholars, modern academic scholars, as well as by Buddhist traditional scholars within the Theravada tradition, as the earliest stratum or layer within the Pali Canon. This is known not only because of its linguistic structure, which is a much more primitive form of Pali, but also because it's the only text that is, is quoted in other sutras. In other words, you get a number of passages where a monk will go to the Buddha and say, you said, da-da-da-da-da, what does that mean? And when the monk does that, it's invariably a passage from the Sutta Nipata. So it seems to be that this is a very, um, a, a collection of teachings that might go quite 
early back in the Buddha's teaching career. If you haven't read it, you would probably enjoy it. It's not long and complicated. It's about 900 verses. It's a short paperback book. And it's sometimes puzzling, but it is very striking. So this is, these are verses 651 to 653. By action is one a farmer, by action a craftsman, by action a merchant, by action a servant, by action a thief, by action a soldier, by action a priest, by action a ruler. In this way, the wise see action as it really is. Seeing conditioned arising, understanding the result of action. So here you get this term conditioned arising, and this is one of the, probably one of the earliest uh, passages where this point is addressed. But what's interesting about it is that the Buddha understands conditioned arising in terms of how people's actions uh, generate or create the role they have in life. Now this is a text, therefore, that has considerable social implications, particularly at the Buddha's time, when remember that in the Brahmanic society, you, were not, you did not become a farmer or become a merchant. You were born a farmer. You were born a merchant. You were born a priest, etc., these were identities that were given at birth. In other words, much the same as would have been the case in, um, in the West too, in Europe, say prior to the European Enlightenment. The, you, if you were born into a carpenter's family, you know, 99 times out of 100, that's what you'd end up doing yourself. If you were born as a woman, the, you, know, you would basically be a childbearer and that was it. There were exceptions, of course, through the priesthood, through the military. But basically, your birth determined your role in life. It was set. And at the Buddha's time, this uh, establishment of um, these roles in society was believed to be divinely ordained. It was actually a God-given duty. And that's what dharma means in Hinduism. Your dharma is your duty to fulfill the role that God gave you at birth. So, um, the Buddha is clearly rejecting uh, this idea and saying, no, you become these things because of what you do, not because of what you are. An action, remember, is actually the word karma. And he's not using the word karma in the modern New Age sense of it. Oh, well, it must be my karma. No, what he means is the way what you do is determines what you become. So here we have again a very clear illustration of um, pragmatism rather than dogmatism. You, you are what you do, you are not what you are. And the whole concept of self, which we'll look at later, is likewise understood as uh, a process of becoming rather than a fixed essential state, which again contradicts the Brahmanic tradition. There is no true self. You create yourself. If you want to look at that, the, the following verses, it gives a beautiful series of 
illustrations for that. We'll, we'll, we'll look at this verse later. And the way the Buddha frames this understanding of the role of the person within society is through conditioned arising. In other words, conditioned arising is not a description of, in, in an abstract sense. It's actually an idea that gives us a framework for saying, well, if everything arises out of something else, then if I act in a different way, a different result will occur. So he sees conditioned arising as a framework for acting differently, from understanding how, by doing X, we generate Y, but if we don't do X, then Y will not arise. And if we do K, then that will produce H, or whatever. So in other words, it's a, a, an, an account of um, life in terms of how we can actually live and work differently. There was a philosopher in the last century who said, the task of the philosopher is not to change, it's not, it's not to explain the world, but to change it. That was Karl Marx in one of his theses on Feuerbach. And it's, I think this is very similar. Very similar. So let's go back to the... Um, the passages on, con on conditioned arising itself. And that's on page 20. Well, the first passage I read out yesterday. Uh, but let's look at it again because I think it's, I th I think it's crucially important. Now that we've understood how the Buddha presents conditioned arising as a framework for action, that's going to give a slightly different spin to how we understand this passage in Marjama 28 where Sariputta says now this has been said by the Buddha or him, the Bhagavat, the Lord one who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising so we must think of this not as a description but as a prescription I think that's very important and, and as, as we'll see, whenever the Buddha speaks of conditioned arising, he speaks of it as very much um, a, a framework for changing how you live. And also, as we'll see, perhaps more crucially in terms of meditation practice, it's a framework for how we actually react and respond to the, the, the experiences that, that come up in each moment. So to see the Dhamma, therefore, is not to see some sort, of, some sort of ultimate truth. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes the word Dhamma is translated as truth with a capital T. This is completely wrong. The Dhamma means something like the law. Something, and again, law implies a framework for, for doing something. So to see conditioned arising, to see how we act and then generate effects is to see the Dhamma. The Dhamma, therefore, is also about doing something. It's pragmatic, it's not dogmatic. It's prescriptive, not descriptive. And I, I don't want to hammer this point home excessively, but I think it's crucially important because there is, I think, a tendency not just amongst 
people in general, but I think this is reinforced by religion and reinforced even by Buddhist tradition. That you sometimes have the idea that the Buddha has awoken to the nature of reality in some sort of ontological sense. This is how things really are. And again, we get this, uh, they get this expression, and in fact, in the translation of the last verse I read out, seeing conditioned arise... No, hang on. In this way, the wise see action as it really is. Um, uh, we often hear this expression, um, you see things as, as they really are, as they are, in the way they are. But this again is a mistranslation. The word is yata bhutan, which doesn't mean you see things as they really are. It means you see things as they happen. Bhutan means to arise, to come about. It doesn't mean to be or to exist. So again there's this emphasis that the wise person sees how things happen, not sees how things are. In a loose colloquial sense, we could perhaps get away with it. But the point is, the Buddha could have used a, the verb to be here in this expression, but he didn't. He used the word Buddha to come about, to happen, to arise. It's again processual rather than, uh, as it were, fixed. This is how it is. No, this is how things happen. I think that's a subtle but a rather important distinction to make. Now in the next verse that I've cited here, which is from the third volume of the, of, of the Sangyuta Nikaya, he's talking to a person called Vakali. Um, I don't remember the exact context, but in any case he says, why do you want to see this foul body of mine? One who sees the Dhamma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dhamma. It's the Buddha speaking. So in other words, the Buddha is actually identifying with uh, conditioned arising and the Dhamma. And I think these two verses, you can see, are structured in exactly the same way. That the Buddha is not his physical body, but the Buddha refers to that awake state of mind, and the, that mind is awakened because it sees conditioned arising. I think we have to point out also, because I'm aware that there is, there's a tendency often, even in, uh, in early Buddhism, uh, to, 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 to describe the Buddha's awakening as one to the unconditioned. But the Buddha doesn't say the one who sees the unconditioned sees the Dhamma. He says the very opposite. The one who sees the conditioned, the phenomenal world, the processes of life themselves, and how that works, that is the key. There's an awful lot of confusion around this word, unconditioned. Um, there is a section here, and we'll probably come back to it. I may as well go into it now. Um, it's true that the Buddha does say in the Udana, if there were... Um, where is it? Yeah, here we are. Uh, there is monks, an unborn, an unbrought to be, an unmade, an unconditioned. If monks, there were no unborn, unbrought to being, unmade, unconditioned, no escape would be discerned from what is born and brought to being, made and conditioned. 
But since there is an unborn and unconditioned, etc., there is an escape from what is born, conditioned, etc. Now, this is an all-time favourite of theistically inclined Western Buddhists. They jump on this passage. You find it cited all over the place. And what it's, I think its appeal lies in the fact that it seems to suggest that there is actually some transcendent reality called the unconditioned or the unborn. And the, and the giveaway, as usual, is that unconditioned, unborn, etc. are given nice big capital U's to just privilege them a bit more. Remember that in Pali, Sanskrit, Chinese, Tibetan, no capital letters. As soon as you see a capital letter appear, you know it's the translator. Definitely. Ine inevitably. And it's basically emphasizing what is basically a bias in the translator's mind. And here we've gone, I think, and done something that is quite illegitimate. We've actually reified We've made into a thing something called asankata, unconditioned. We also need to remember that in Pali, Sanskrit, Chinese and Tibetan, there's no definite articles, there's no thes at all. The, whether the word is understood as a, in a definite or an indefinite way is purely and only by context. But the unconditioned sounds very much like God. And I suspect that that was probably what the word meant at the Buddha's time. After all, Brahman is the one thing that is not conditioned. Just as God in Christian theology is the unmoved mover, the unconditioned source of all that is conditioned, the creation. We have a, we, I think we have a deep yearning for something like that to exist. And we feel that if you take that away, then your life is somehow groundless. But the trouble is that might be true. And we have to learn to live with that rather than uh, appeal to some metaphysical idea of some God or unconditioned or absolute uh, to feel that we're somehow existentially secure. And this, I think, is, is the real challenge of the Buddha's teaching in the, in the early texts, is because he pulls that rug out from beneath your feet. It's very scary. It's not consoling or comforting at all. And in that sense, it's also not really a religion, if a religion is understood as that which gives you consolation and security in a kind of existential way. This does the very opposite. It throws you onto your own feet. Now, what does the Buddha mean then by the unconditioned? Well, he says himself, if you go over the next page, the middle quote, which is from Sangyutta Nikaya 4, th there are a sequence of texts in the Sangyutta Nikaya, which means the, uh, the connected discourses of the Buddha, great big thick volume, and there's a whole sequence called the Asankata Sangyutta, the connected discourses on the unconditioned. Or, or on unconditioned. 35. Middle of the page. You got it? It starts at Savati. Monks. I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. Listen to this. And what monks is the unconditioned? 
the destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. Maybe not what you quite expected to hear. What does that mean? And what, monks, is the path leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed to the body. This is called the path leading to the unconditioned. So what, here's a very good example of the Buddha subverting Brahmanic tradition. Okay, he's using the word. But what he does is he turns it from a noun into a verb. In other words, yes, there is freedom from greed and hatred and delusion. There is freedom from being conditioned by those things. You can yourselves find a place within your life where you are unconditioned by greed, hatred, delusion. This is clearly the meaning of this passage. The destruction of greed, destruction of hatred, destruction of delusion. The absence of something. The absence of those things that habitually condition our behavior. Condition how we think. I want, I don't like, I don't know. You can, there is an escape from that condition because you can be unconditioned by these things. That's what the passage means. And I think it's quite clear. And it's very characteristic of the, 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 the principles that underpin the Buddha's teaching. It's pragmatic, not dogmatic. It's not, when he says the unborn, he's not describing something, he's prescribing something. He's not telling you what is, he's telling you what you could do. It's an excellent example. But you'll find uh, and you'll read and, and hear all over the place that the practice of the Dharma is to lead you to the unconditioned. That's not really much different from the practice of Vedanta, where the unconditioned is the Atman Brahma. Um, I get rather, as you're probably well aware by now, I get rather uh, uh, disheartened by this slippage back to a view that the Buddha in these texts clearly rejects. Of course, it doesn't make me terribly popular either. Okay, let's go on to the next text. Um, here we have a, a discourse addressed to a man called Udayin. Udayin, I think, was a follower of Mahavira, the Jain. We're on back to page 20 now. I'm sorry to be jumping around. I've tried to, I've spent ages trying to order these quotes in a way that I should just be able to read through them, but it doesn't work out like that. It's conditioned. Yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> okay, so this is a passage which is a very, this is a very well-known passage. Uh, from Marjama 79. Let be the past, Udayin. Let be the future. I shall teach you the Dharma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. Now, you might say, well, yeah, very... Yeah, well, so what? 
it, it almost seems uh, self-evident. It's a bit like we said yesterday afternoon. You know, if you if you act in a certain way, there'll be consequences. Well, don't we know that? Well, we do know it, but I would argue that what the Buddha's pointing out is we don't actually really know it. That we, we think that, you know, in a general sense, yes. I think, I can't hard, hardly imagine anyone in this world who would say actions don't have consequences. But, of course, particularly when we start doing things we perhaps shouldn't, even we know we perhaps shouldn't really be doing, underlying that is the is this hope that the action won't have a consequence. Right? Well, I know I shouldn't be smoking 40 cigarettes a day, but what the hell, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll be lucky. They'll find a cure for cancer before I get it, you know. We do a lot of things, and we think a lot of things, and we say a lot of things, in the kind of dream that it won't have negative consequences, even though another part of us recognises that it probably will. So I think this is really a call to pay attention to our own tendency to think that we can basically get away with things. That's the English colloquial way of expressing that. Oh, I'll get away with that. It doesn't really matter. No one will see me. And I'm sure most of us have a history of things that we probably still regret that at the time we, were, we thought we'd get away with. So it is really challenging us, I think, at a fairly deep moral place. So it's more than just a kind of a description of what we might call causality. It is about causality, of course it is. But the Buddha is not interested in abstract descriptions of things. And again, if you look at the first line of this text... Uh, it's also rather telling. He says, don't think about the past or die, and don't think about the future. And you expect him to therefore say, be in the present moment. But he never mentions the word the present. Instead, he says, I will teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. So he is addressing our present condition. Our present condition is that whatever you do now will have a consequence in the future. And if you don't do something that you were going to do now, that will have a consequence too. That result won't occur. So he's asking us to pay attention right now to how our thoughts are inclining us to words and deeds, which are going to have a consequence on ourselves and also, of course, a consequence on other people and, in a wider sense, a consequence on our world perhaps consequences that will occur after our death. But the important point is not to sort of speculate about the future or the past, but is to take responsibility for what you're doing now. That's what matters. Because that's the only way you're going to make a difference. We might all want to be good environmentalists, but how often is that something we keep deferring? Well, I, I can't, I can't, you know, right now I've really got to have this thing, um, this whatever car, motorbike. Um, I'll worry about my commitment to the environment a bit later. Or whatever. We do this all the time. I do this. Maybe you don't. But the, the point is that 
the Buddha's pointing to something very uh, chronic within human thought and behavior. How we don't really own up and take responsibility for how we think and speak and behave now. That's what matters. Now, the next passage is from the Diganikaya, the longer discourses. And unfortunately, I've left off the, um, the opening question. I don't know why I did that. Uh, basically, Ananda comes to the Buddha and says, this condition arising isn't very profound. It doesn't seem very, very profound, which is probably an objection some of us might have too on first hearing about it. And this is what the Buddha says. He says, this condition arising is profound, and it appears profound. It seems to me to be profound. Because it's through not understanding, not penetrating this Dhamma, that people have become like tangled balls of string. It's one wonderful image. Covered with a blight, tangled like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe, ill destiny, ruin and repetition. I think it's a beautiful passage. And I really like the idea of the tangled ball of string. I can relate to that. We feel tangled up, ensnarled, sort of caught up by, basically, the, the compulsions of our habitual behavior. Greed, hatred, delusion. We're so driven by these things that they completely tangle us up. And we fail to, as it were, recognize the consequences of living from that perspective. And what the Buddha is really trying to get us to do, and we'll see this tomorrow when we come to the Four Truths, he's trying to uh, establish another perspective from which to live this life right now. Not the perspective of our attachments, our fears, our hatreds, our greeds, our egoism, our self-centeredness. That's the tangled ball of string perspective. But once we really and honestly uh, recognize uh, the, uh, what are the conditions that give rise to so many of the, the problems and the troubles we have, we'll find a perspective to act otherwise, to think otherwise, to speak otherwise. And I'm sure most of us who have come on a retreat like this are probably, in, in, in a way, aware of what it is that we're struggling with. And, and again, I think the, the importance of, 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 of meditation um, is, is really lies in exactly this point. Because, you see, I don't think just intellectually or conceptually to know these things is going to make much difference at all, frankly. The only way we're going to really get to the root of this is by stilling our minds and sharpening our perception and understanding things in a gut, intuitive way. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to carry on behaving as usual. And so the challenge here is enormous because what the Buddha is challenging is probably what we'd now understand as uh, behaviors and habits that are deeply rooted in our neurobiology, <coughs> in our neurobiology. In other words, greed, hatred and delusion are not just sort of accidental habits that we've picked up in the mind. 
They're right down there in the reptilian brain. That you can't just switch them off by doing a bit of mindfulness. You have to live with these things. They're not, they're not going to go away. They might decline, diminish, become easier to work with, and they can certainly become ex exacerbated and made worse. But their presence is probably going to be with us as long as we are in this human organism. They're the legacy of our evolutionary past. They have provided us with significant survival advantages, and that's why they're still there. Now, the next section, um, which I re really don't have time to go through in, in detail, and I'd just ask you to read it, really, is again from the Sutta Nipata. It starts with the number 862 and runs through to 874, from page 20 to 22. And this is the earliest account that I found in the Pali Canon of what are usually called the 12 links of dependent origination or conditioned arising, which is a classic Buddhist dogma, really. We don't have time, I'm afraid, to go into that. It would take way too long. And I hope that most of you are loosely familiar with it. I'll just run through the 12 links. Ignorance is the condition, or, or avijja, pachaya, sankara. Con, uh, dependent or conditioned by ignorance, there arises karmic action or karmic formations. Conditioned by karma arises consciousness. Conditioned by consciousness arises name and form. Conditioned by name and form arise the six senses. Conditioned by the six senses arises contact. Conditioned by contact arises feeling. Conditioned by feeling arises craving. Conditioned by craving arises clinging. Conditioned by clinging arises becoming. Conditioned by becoming arises birth. Conditioned by birth arises sickness, aging and death. Now that is really, um, I think, the final elaboration that Buddhist orthodoxy arrived at, um, which began with this passage that I've written out in full for you here. Now the 12-link the model is actually, has become a metaphysical description of how we are born into this world and how we are then propelled into another birth at death. You, have, you can't understand these 12 links without seeing it as describing uh, three lifetimes. The past life, ignorance and karma. This life, consciousness, name, form, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming. And the next life, birth, sickness, aging, death. That is the classical way it's understood. And it is basically a metaphysical theory. The core of it lies in the middle section. And that's where it's actually useful. And that, I think, is what we find when we go back to this version, where, again, it's quite, it's quite striking, really. If we look at verse 862, 
Whence arise quarrels, disputes, lamentations and grief, together with avarice also, pride and arrogance, together with slander too. Where do these arise? Tell me, pray. Now, here we have a very different starting point. In the classic accounts of the 12-link model, the one I've sketched, the starting question is, why do we suffer? Why are we born? Why do we die? And then the 12 links are presented as an explanation for why we get into the state we're in now. That's very metaphysical, very theoretical, very difficult to prove or disprove. It's a religious kind of belief. But when the Buddha first introduces this idea, he starts uh, with human conflict, quarrels, disputes, lamentations, grief, avarice, pride, arrogance, slander. That's what he wants to analyse. Why is it that human beings are always quarrelling with each other? Why do we have so much dispute, grief? Why are we so avaricious, proud, arrogant? Why do we slander one another? This is the starting point for his analysis. Not birth and death, but human conflict. He then analyses it in, through the subsequent verses and I've outlined at the end of the section um, how we actually come down to about six links it's not as neatly defined as the 12 link model which again is suggestive of it being a kind of an early uh, thinking through this problem rather than a final orthodox account and it basically comes down quarrels, disputes, lamentation etc I'm working backwards uh, arise out of things which are dear and are greed for them. These arise out of desire, anger, lying and doubt. These arise out of what is pleasant and unpleasant, in other words, feeling. These arise out of contact, and contact arises out of name and form. So you can see the, um, the, the rough outline that subsequently develops into this much more highly theorized model of the 12 links. You know, name and form is just a way of talking about the phenomenal world. Uh, it, it's a term the Buddha, Buddha borrows from the Upanishads. It refers to the, f the phenomenal world of individual identities. That brings us into contact with that world, and that contact generates pleasure, pain. On the basis of pleasure and pain, there then arise desire, aversion, etc. That gives rise to greed, and that gives rise to quarrels, disputes, and lamentation. So in other words, his account of a conditionality once again is pragmatic, because he describes a series of conditions that we can actually act upon, and that's what we're doing in our meditation, actually. I'll come on to that in a minute. Um, but it's also, and I think this is the point that has to be flagged, is it concerns entirely our situation in this life, in this world. There's no mention here of past lives, future lives, getting reborn. It's all about a methodology to deal with conflict here and now. That's the point that's being made, and that's quite clear, I think. But 
to translate this into uh, how we um, might work with it, and particularly in the context of a retreat like this, then we get very much to the heart of the practice of mindfulness. The, the only bit that you really have to pay attention to of this sequence of, 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 of causes and effects is contact, feeling, craving. Contact, feeling, craving. That's all we really need to know. The, the know is the very center of both this analysis and the 12 link analysis. So when we're sitting here, particularly as our minds get more still, get more calm, we start to notice things more clearly. It's as though we kind of can begin to sort of see things in slower and slower motion. It's the, the quietening of the mind and the stilling of the mind is not just some sort of mental operation that might be agreeable and peaceful, but actually it kind of enables us to see more precisely, more moment to moment, what's going on in our actual patterns of reactivity. This is why we really have to, if we're going to take this practice seriously, we really have to learn to still the mind. We don't necessarily have to take it into deep jhana and trance-like states, but we do need to get what's called shamatha, that stillness, calm abiding. In other words, as long as our mind is running at a million miles a minute, just sort of on a kind of roller coaster of associations, memories, fears and so on, we're just not going to have the stability and stillness to see more clearly how our minds are working. This is the importance of shamatha, very important. I mean, people will dispute to what extent you need it, but obviously the more the better. And the practice we're doing, particularly when we focus on something like the breath, is really about trying to get ourselves more focused, more still, in a way that we actually begin to, to bodily and emotionally quieten down. And our thoughts become less, I wouldn't say they disappear altogether, but they diminish. Coming on retreat, we cut ourselves off from stimulations that constantly are stirring us up. This is contact, basically. Uh, we notice now on a retreat how, how we're constantly through our, what we feel in our body, what we notice in our minds, what we hear outside, we're constantly and inescapably assailed by data, to put it crudely. Stuff is being, as it were, bombarding our senses all the time. And even if you're in a sensory deprivation tank in Totnes or the New Zealand equivalent, Nelson or something. <laughs> I was just, do they have them in Nelson? Isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you go to these new age places and you've got these sensory deprivation tanks. I used to go to one, actually. I didn't find it at all restful. The, um, you go into a pool of um, body heat level uh, water that's saturate, saturated with balsamic salts, I think, I think, I think, I think it is. So, and you're completely naked, it's completely dark. You can, if you want, have some New Age Celtic harps or something <laughs> piped in. <laughs> but um, 
that I find is it makes it even more unbearable. <laughs> so you're in a situation where basically you get virtually no sensory input at all. And um, you can't feel your body. Um, you can't see anything. You can, but what you do is you, you get, you're absolutely bombarded by the inner noises of your ears. It's really a racket in there. All that's going on. And, um, but what that shows is that you cannot escape contact. And if, even if you don't get the buzzing in the ears, then the mind is chucking up all this stuff. Worries, you know, fantasies, thoughts, emotions. It's all, you, you just cannot switch the bloody thing off. It's unswitch-offable. And the Buddha, I think, is quite, you know, he's, he's aware of this, that unless you get into some jhana state, and even then there'll be something going on, you're constantly bombarded with stuff. And what we're doing in mindfulness meditation is to notice that, to notice the bombardment, to notice the point of, of, of contact. The word for contact is sparsa, literally means touch. We're always being touched. We're being touched by thoughts, touched by sensations, by sounds, whatever it might be. That we, this, this is the nature of our existence, to be endlessly touched and stimulated and provoked by things coming at us that we don't, we don't choose to happen. We find ourselves in a world in which we are um, impacted by unpredictable and continuous stuff. Now the sheer bewilderment that that, uh, that overload of information uh, does not really allow us, and we're not trained in our culture, um, to deal with it in a kind of contemplative, quiet, responsible way. Uh, what happens is that that contact uh, stimulates um, an endless sequence either of desires, attractions, anything that feels nice we want, anything that feels unpleasant we don't want, and if we're not getting pleasant or unpleasant, we're just bored, basically. It's no fun. We want, we want some, some sort of kick. And so we oscillate basically between attraction, aversion and boredom. It's true. And um, it's very difficult to get out of that pattern because it's so embedded, it's so rooted uh, in our, probably our brains, our bodies, our lives, our culture, especially in a consumer culture. Um, you know, we seem to develop devices to create more contact um, all the time. iPods, for example, or whatever it might, I, it might be. We just want, we can't seem to get enough of sensory bombardment. To, go to America, two or three hundred channels of TV, all of which are crap. And yet you, you go through them and uh, <laughs> numbed on this stuff. So in the meditation, uh, we're really taking that on. We're trying to still the mind, notice this stuff going on, and that's why it's so useful to come on a retreat, because we at least don't have the constant, everyday bombardment of the media and so on. We don't talk. There's another reason we don't talk, because that stimulates all kinds of stuff, as we know. 
So we try to quieten down, at least for a bit, to see what's going on, to notice that even in this quiet, silent environment, we're still bombarded by stuff. Maybe we're more bombarded by inner stuff, but it's still stuff. By noticing that, by noticing then how we respond or react to it, pulling and pushing, aversion, attraction, we can begin to see that as well. That's very, very important. To notice how we're responding, reacting. And it's only when we can get that kind of attention, that kind of stillness, that we can choose not to react. We can just see this stuff happening without being caught up in it. And that is the first moment of freedom, of, of, of genuine inner freedom. We are free not to react, not to grasp, not to crave. And that's the point. It's, that, it's right there in, in those sorts of moments that we experience Nibbana, the unconditioned, we are no longer conditioned by our reactivity. We can do that. It's not easy. It may not last long. But that's the space we need to cultivate and open up through this kind of practice. The mind, of course, will rebel. We hate doing this at one level. But it's only by really working on these disciplines by establishing some sort of practice, that we can um, begin to get to a point where we can see our things that are happening to us more clearly, we can see the first stirrings of the mind, we can see more clearly how these patterns are kicking in, and we can just understand it for what it is, rather than get entangled in it, like a tangled ball of string. So that's what really this practice is about. And you can see perhaps now how these you know, conditioned arising and mindfulness are intimately connected. Mindfulness is the way to really understand this conditionality. But more than anything else, can then uh, choose not to be conditioned by things that will only cause us anxiety, worry, frustration and pain. So I will stop there, and tomorrow we will look at um, how conditioned arising is, the, um, is connected to the Four Noble Truths. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.